2 Samuel chapter number 15. We're going to read the first 12 verses of this chapter, and then we'll pray. The Word of God says, And it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and fifty men to run before him. Now, Absalom is the son of David. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate, And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. And Absalom said, Moreover, O that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice." And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And it came to pass after forty years that Absalom said unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. For thy servant vowed a vow while I abode at Jeshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said unto him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And with Absalom went two hundred men out of Jerusalem that were called. And they went in their simplicity, not knowing, and they knew not anything." Verse 12, I want you to notice this. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gelanite, David's counselor, from his city, even from Gelo, while he offered sacrifices. The Bible says, And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. Let's pray together. Lord, I love you. I thank you for this time. I pray that you would give uh, conciseness and clarity to my thoughts and words. I pray that you'd speak to hearts that which would bring you glory. Lord, we are your children. We are your saints. We ask that you equip us that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We'll be sure to give you glory for it. Lord, I love you. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The thought I'm interested in tonight is summed up in the phrase used in verse 12 when the Bible says the conspiracy was strong. Now, I believe as we study this passage of Scripture, to give you a little bit of history and background for it, Absalom is the son of David. And Absalom has said in his heart that he is going to wrestle the throne away from his father, David. And so he sets out upon a plan whereby he is going to accrue the influence and affection of all the children of Israel. He's got certain actors in this conspiracy. They are co-conspirators with him that uh, he is placing at key and important positions, and his intention is to set the trap, and in one fell swoop, spring this trap, and wrestle the throne that does not belong to him away from his father, David. You might say, preacher, uh, what could apply to my life uh, from Second Samuel 15? What does Absalom, the long-dead king, uh, son of a long-dead king, have to do in his conspiracy with my life today? 
When I read this passage, I can't help but be reminded that there was a conspiracy that was afoot back then to try to rob the throne from the king. And there is likewise today, spiritually speaking, a conspiracy of satanic character which is uh, that's desire is to wrestle the throne of our hearts away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the devil knows he can't get the throne of the universe. But he can try to get the throne of your heart. You say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, uh, every one of us has a throne in our heart. Now, of course, it's not physical, uh, uh, but it is literal. And uh, that throne that is in our hearts, that is where we enshrine whatever is most precious to us. Uh, It might be a a person, it might be a relationship, it might be wealth, it might be uh, popularity. But for every single one of us, there's something in life that trumps everything else that is a priority. It is what we call preeminent in our lives. Now, for every believer, it ought to be the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll go ahead and admit to you, it's not always the case. And even in my life, there are times uh, that I allow things to vie for the authority and autonomy uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ in my heart. But it ought to be that the Lord is always ruling our hearts and our lives. He ought to always be the most important thing in our lives. And just like Absalom, Satan understands he can't rule the universe, but he can try to wrestle away the throne of our heart. Now, I want to give you three things very quickly that were his design behind doing this. Number one, he wanted to alienate the king. In other words, he wanted to drive a wedge between the people and their king. You mark it down. Satan has a desire, first and foremost, to drive a wedge in between the fellowship we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows that's his first step, amen? He knows if he's going to get to us, then he has to get our hearts away from Jesus. Number two, he wants to expel the king. Now, uh, again, let me remind you, if persons believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, they are not just saved, they are eternally saved. Uh, They are once saved, they are always saved. And there's nothing that can make us not his child once we've been born again and received Christ as our Savior. But as far as expelling His influence from our lives, there are a lot of people in this world today that live as though Christ has no part in them. And Satan's desire is to expel the king and his influence from our lives. In other words, he knows he can't send us to hell, but he wants to make us ineffective and make us of no consequence for the cause of Christ. Then number three, he wants to enthrone the conspirators. And in Satan's example, that is himself and the influences of this world. He wants to kick Jesus off the throne of your heart, and He wants to sit on the throne of your heart. Absalom's desire was for David to not be king and for himself to be king. For all those that were loyal to David to have no part in the kingdom, but all those that were loyal to Absalom, he wanted them to have part in the kingdom. So there's no question that this conspiracy took place. There's no question that there is a satanic conspiracy afoot today. Uh, we uh, like to use the term sometimes, or, or it's popular in the media, anytime somebody uh, thinks something's going on, everybody calls them a conspiracy theorist. Do you know what a conspiracy is? A conspiracy is a plot, plan, or device of two or more people with a common goal and agenda. I believe there are a lot of conspiracies today. Amen? Uh, hey, listen, I, I believe that there's a conspiracy for me not have a parking spot every time I go to the grocery store, amen? Uh, Because the people driving around are looking for spots and the people building the parking lots ain't building them big enough. 
So we need to be cautious when we talk about a conspiracy. We're not talking about aliens. We're not talking about lizard people. Uh, What we're talking about is that Satan has an agenda in this world and that he is working hand in glove uh, both with satanic influences and with people of the world, people that are surrendered over to his desire and his will. They are working in concert with each other to undermine the cause of Christ and the influence of Christ through the local church in the world today. I want to give you three important truths about this conspiracy. And they were true of this conspiracy, and they're also true of the conspiracy uh, that exists today that Satan is perpetrating to undermine the witness of the church and the devotion of God's people. Let me say, number one, it was a literal conspiracy. Uh, In the strictest sense of the term, what is taking place in 2 Samuel 15, it fits all the criteria of being a conspiracy. As you read further on, you'll find this, uh, that Absalom had a lot of people that were in league with him. Uh, He certainly had Ahithophel, uh, who was a counselor of David, was in league with him. He had generals that were in league with him. He had 200 men that followed him to Jerusalem that were in league with him. He had several people that were conspiring together with him. It was a literal conspiracy. Let me say this, that the satanic influence and desire today of Satan is also a literal conspiracy. It is a spiritual conspiracy. But listen, just because something's spiritual, that don't mean it's literal. That doesn't mean it's not literal. In other words, I was spiritually born again. I was also literally born again. Amen? wasn't physically born again, but I was spiritually born again. And that is to be literally born again. Uh, for when we're born again, we get life that's, uh, that's more life than the life we're given when we're born the first time. And so it is a literal conspiracy. Ephesians chapter 6 says this about uh, satanic influences in this world. Verses 10 through 13 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against, now notice this, principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now that's at least four distinct groups, each of them comprised of many different people, that uh, we are spiritually warring against. I didn't say physically warring against, I said spiritually warring against. And he says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. And preacher, why are you saying this? Because I'm trying to get you to understand that there is a concerted effort to undermine the cause of Christ today. It is not by accident that the things of God are hated. It is not by accident that all that is biblical is despised. It is not by accident that today it seems the only thing that the plethora of uh, of intersectional coalitions in the world today, the only thing they can all seem to agree on is Christians are to blame. It's funny, uh, when you look at society today, uh, you know, it's amazing to me that a group of people that say they believe in the quote-unquote rights of sodomites can yoke up and line up with hardcore radical Muslims, uh, the same people that are pushing homosexuals off the top of buildings in the Middle East. Why, where is their common ground? Their common ground is a hatred of Bible Christianity. And listen, before you say I'm paranoid, there's no question. What could make such strange bedfellows except a common enemy? 
Uh, you see this all across the line. It seems like the only thing anymore today that has bipartisan support. Uh, and I said bipartisan support because both parties are a bunch of snakes. Amen. The only thing that's got bipartisan support is taking away the rights of Christians. Uh, it's amazing to me that people can yoke up and uh, hold hands and agree that a person ought to have their lives destroyed for refusing to bake a cake. Uh, and listen, I, I'm not poor-mouthing. I mean, uh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords is the captain of my salvation. I've got nothing to complain about. I'm just merely saying it is present there. It is a real, it is a literal conspiracy. Uh, and we as believers, we ought to be wise of that. That doesn't mean we need to be ugly or rude. It doesn't mean we need to walk around with a victim complex or with a chip on our shoulder. But we do need to be aware that it's present, that it's a real thing. It was a literal conspiracy. Let me say number two, it was a lengthy conspiracy. Look down at verse 7. I've got a few things I want to say about this verse. The Bible says, And it came to pass after forty years that Absalom said unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. Now, as you read that passage, it says after 40 years. In fact, if you were looking at Mr. Schofield's margin notes, he says some authorities read four. I say the ultimate authority reads 40. Amen? Like one old boy said, sometimes Schofield will say you ought to omit this word, and when he does, you ought to just omit Schofield. Amen? I don't believe there's anything wrong with what it says there. Uh, all the scholars, all the commentators, they want to say, well, this was a corruption of the text, and it should have read four instead of 40. There's only a few problems with that. Number one, I think God knows the difference between 40 and 4. Uh, and if we believe God preserved His Word, then we ought to believe that God would not do so with errors within it, because that's not preservation at all. One preacher said it this way, if I can green beans in June and open them up in December and they ain't green beans, I've not preserved them. Amen? Uh, so if God can preserve His Word, then God certainly knew uh, the right word to choose here. Here's another problem with it. For all the wisdom of the textual critics that want to straighten us out, uh, us simple Bible believers, the term for doesn't resolve the issue. You see, the problem when we read this verse with our understanding of it is we say 40 years from what? Well, if you change that to four instead of 40, you're still asking from what? The term for doesn't clarify anything. We have no reason to believe that the vow that uh, Absalom took was four years prior. So to change the Word of God never provides answers. It always just provides more questions. But if instead we'll go to the Word of God to try to have an understanding about it, I believe we'll find wisdom. I believe we'll find the truth. Uh, now, a lot of people take issue with this because uh, David only reigned for 40 years. He reigned seven and a half uh, years in Hebron and uh, 33 years in Israel, in Jerusalem. And so people say, well, how could it be after 40 years? Well, I don't believe it is reckoning it from the day that he became king. You see, the thing that's in question here is who has the authority. And the authority doesn't come from the people. The authority comes from God. It was God that chose David. Now, if you roll the clock back and do the math, 40 years prior to this rebellion, there was a significant thing that happened. David was uh, anointed to be the future king over Israel. Seven years before David ever assumed and ascended the throne, Samuel took a horn of oil and went out to the shepherd's field and found David and anointed him king over Israel. And it was another seven years before he ever became the king. You say, preacher, what does that have to do with anything? Well, here's the thing I understand from it is this. Uh, when it says after 40 years, it's reckoning it from the day that uh, David was anointed king over Israel. Now, you say after 40 years, what? I think for 40 years, Satan had been working this thing out. 
I think the moment God starts moving, Satan starts moving. I think the moment, we see this, by the way, all through the Word of God. Hey, listen, uh, you'll find that every time that God's up to something, Satan is equally up to something. He's always trying to undermine what God's doing. Now you say, preacher, what does that have to do with me today? Here's what I want you to understand from it. We have an idea that all of a sudden things just went crazy. You hear people say it all the time. They'll say, I don't know what's the matter with people. It wasn't like this when I was younger. Well, it was probably a little more like it than you realize. Just back then, everybody wasn't so hooked up on Facebook and social media and the news 24 hours a day. But beyond that, hey, listen, Satan has always sought to undermine the work of God. This didn't begin with me and you. Satan has always endeavored to do this. Even in the Garden of Eden, he sought to dethrone and in, uh, the, the Lord's authority and enthrone his own authority. So I think it's a lengthy conspiracy. It didn't start with Absalom. And when we look at the world and the wickedness that's in it today, it's easy to say, well, those people are crazy. Hey, listen, Satan's always had people working in this world. It's not anything new. But let me say, thank the Lord, that it's a lost conspiracy. Because I've read the end of the book, and I know how this thing winds up. And the Bible says in Revelation 20.10, the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever. Take courage that this thing is already for the devil. It's a lost cause. He's already a defeated foe. Now, I want to give you three qualities about this conspiracy, and this is my message tonight. I want to say tonight, number one, that it was covert. And we'll show how that it was covert. What Satan is doing today in this world is not something that is intended to be blatant and to be exposed to everyone. He is doing it subtly, underhandedly. He is deceiving people. I'll say, number two, that it was counterfeit. The devil is not an originalist. He cannot create anything. He can only pervert that which God has already created. And we'll see in this passage how that Absalom just took everything that David had and flipped it around and perverted it. And then finally we'll see tonight before we're done how it was conquered. And I'm thankful tonight that the devil is already a beaten foe. And I'm thankful that the Lord already has the victory. I want you to notice with me tonight how it was covert. In the first six verses, we won't read all of them uh, in one uh, in one setting. We'll read them as we preach them. But in the first six verses, we have Absalom sort of beginning in his mind the first movements of the machine of deceiving the children of Israel. Now, he did not come to them and say, Hey, I hate my father and I want to kick him off the throne. He didn't come to them and say, Hey, I want to be king over this land. But with subtlety, he stole the hearts of the children of Israel. I want you to understand something tonight. Uh, The way that Satan is trying to destroy your marriages and your homes and your children, it's not going to be a blatant, on-the-nose thing. It is going to be a subtle thing. He is going to seek to undermine and to subvert and to deceive. Uh, Part of our problem is uh, we want the devil to come knocking on the front door, and that's not how he works. And if he doesn't, then we want to look at somebody and say, oh, you're paranoid. Well, say, hey, listen, you got a problem with that music? You're just paranoid. Hey, listen, you got a problem with folks? Hey, you're just paranoid. You got a problem with that? Those movies? You're just paranoid. And we want to dismiss people, but what do we find that Absalom did? I want you to notice three things. One, he approached with splendor. Verse one, the Bible says, and it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and fifty men to run before him. Why did he do this? 
Absalom wasn't doing it because his life was under any danger. Absalom wasn't doing this because he felt it necessary to have a team of bodyguards with him. Absalom did this for one reason and one reason alone, to show and to exhibit strength to the children of Israel. Here's what he was trying to say. Hey, David can't protect you, but I can protect you. He was trying to say, David ain't who he used to be. Oh, but I'm better than he ever was. David doesn't need to be your king. I need to be your king. He was saying, look at all that I have to offer you. Isn't it funny, man, when you turn on the TV and you turn on, uh, a beer commercial comes rolling across the screen. Uh, it's always people that's young and sleek and attractive. and Don't nobody look like that after ten years of drinking beer. Somebody say amen to that. You know, and, and, and when, you, when you watch uh, shows and, and, and they show illicit relationships and wicked relationships, they don't ever show the heartache and heartbreak that comes from it. Uh, listen, they don't ever, and I don't know why, listen, uh, you can't, uh, a cigarette commercial can't roll across without right behind it you seeing some poor old boy with a hole in his throat. Why don't we do that with liquor too? Hey, listen, if we're going to scroll across there, all these people playing beach volleyball with their cores light, why don't we just roll one right behind it of some little four or five-year-old beating until their bones are broken? I'm just saying this, that the devil, he doesn't show you the, the dark side of it. He comes with splendor. He comes uh, bearing uh, seeming flashiness and, and brightness. And he comes to you trying to dazzle and wow you and show you that he's got more than God could ever offer. But here's the problem. He never shows you the back end. He never shows you the result. He, and some of y'all in this room, listen, you've grown up and, and been in situations. You've seen the ugliness that sin can do in a home. And you've seen, you've, you've experienced a home that is just uh, trembles with fear every time daddy comes through the door, stays up late wondering where mama is. You know what it is to have your life wrecked and ruined by sin. Let us never forget, no matter how flashy the world makes it look, sin at the end bringeth forth death. Let us never forget it. He approached with splendor. Then look at the next two verses. The Bible says, And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. Now let me pause here and explain what Absalom's doing. The gate of the city was a place of judgment. The king would oftentimes come out and sit in the gate of the city and he would hear the complaints of the people. And it was sort of, it was like, it was like the people's court, you know, bum, 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 you know, the people's court. They would sit out there and wait to hear the complaints of the people. So what Absalom would do is he'd go to the gate of the city and he'd get there before David did and he'd have his chariots out there and he'd have his armed men out there and he'd wait. And when somebody would come up having a complaint, he would say to him, hey, where are you from? And the person would say, well, I'm from Bethlehem, or I'm from Shechem, or I'm from wherever it might be. And Absalom said unto him, see, thy matters are good and right. But there is no man deputy of the king to hear thee. He'd say to him, you got every right to complain. The problem is you ain't got nobody to complain to. Absalom said, moreover, oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. He approached not only with splendor, but he approached with slander. He came and he undermined David, his father. He'd catch these people before they ever got to David. And you know, that's how the devil works. That, that's the reason that we ought to fight so hard to reach young people with the gospel. Because if the devil can get them before they ever get to Christ, there's not much hope for them. 
And he would come and he'd catch them before they ever got to the king. And he'd say, you know, you've got every reason to complain, but the king, he ain't meeting your needs. The king, he's not seeing to his business. The king, he's not taking care of his responsibilities. If I was the judge, if I had the authority, I'd do better than him. You know, that's what the devil does. He'll come along and he'll make you feel like a victim. I want you to listen carefully. There are victims in this world. Uh, There are people whom the world takes and chews up and spits out, and that's awful and that's tragic. But the vast majority of people that are claiming to be a victim don't know what being a victim is. And again, I'm not saying there aren't real victims, but I'm saying there's a lot of folks think they's victims that ain't victims. There's a lot of folks that think they have cause to shake their fist at God when uh, really, in all reality, God is not uh, allowing those things in their life because He hates them, but because He loves them and He's trying to draw them close to Himself. But if you're not careful, the devil will come up beside you and say, you know, God really ain't being fair to you. You know, God's really not doing right by you. If God loves you, why did He let this sickness in your life? If God loves you, why did He let you lose that loved one? God loves you, why does He let you fall on hard times? And the devil will slide up beside you and say, I'll do better for you than God would. But hey, see the end result of it, friend. Uh, my preacher used to say the devil don't have any happy old people. Amen. At the end, it biteth as an adder. At the end, it brings destruction. But he tries to slander. And then notice the third thought he approached with seduction. Verse number 5, And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. Now, what does this mean? Well, whenever they would come up to Absalom, and they would bow down and kneel before him to try to do honor, you know what he'd do? He'd reach down, he'd pick him up, and he'd say, Hey, listen, let me hug you, let me kiss you, let me comfort you. You know what he was trying to say? He was trying to say this. King David, he treats you like a lesser, but I'll treat you like an equal. He was trying to say, hey, David wouldn't do this, but he doesn't love you the way I love you. I'll treat you as an equal. I'll give you prominence. I'll give you authority. He was appealing to their pride. And he was saying, you know, you're so important. You deserve someone to dote over you. It's funny. The devil is real loving until he doesn't need you anymore. Look at the prodigal son. Hey, listen, when he first set out from daddy's driveway, he had everything that he could have needed. He had all the money and all the friends that come along with money. But as soon as he had wasted his living, uh, his money on riotous living, as soon as he had wasted his substance, there was no man found to take care of him. And he wound up, the devil put him in a hog pen. And people say he ate pig slop. He didn't eat pig slop. He wasn't good enough to eat pig slop. He fain would have filled his belly with the husks which the swine did eat. He longed to. If his Gentile master would have let him eat the slop, he would have. But the Gentile master said, no, it's too good for you. That's for the pigs. It shows you where the devil will finally puts you. He approached with splendor and slander and seduction. It was covert. And the devil, listen, he comes to you as a friend. Uh, The Bible says, Paul said he can appear as an angel of light. He doesn't come to you looking as a foe and as an enemy. He comes to you to seduce you and with splendor and slander of God and to try to make you feel good about yourself. And then I want you to notice tonight, not only was it covert, but it was counterfeit. And we see three false things that... Absalom did to try to lend some sort of credibility to his conspiracy. And let me say this, this applies almost on a societal and certainly on an ecumenical level. I think you'll understand what I mean here in a moment. Look at verses 7 through 9. The Bible says, And it came to pass after forty years that Absalom said unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. 
For thy servant bowed a vow while I abode at Jeshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said unto him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Look at verse 10. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel. Let me say, number one, that Absalom had a false motive in what he was doing. We might describe it this way. He had a false piety in what he was doing. He comes to David, his father, and he says, You know, Dad, I I made a vow when I was abiding in Jeshur. I I made a promise to God that if He brought me back to Jerusalem, I'd serve Him. So I need to go back and I need to pay that vow. Can I say this to you tonight? Satan always dresses up as a religious figure. He can dress up anything to look like religion. I jotted this down. I want you to hear it. Satan preaches compromise as compassion. Satan never comes out and says, I want to destroy you. No, he dresses up as something harmless. Uh, Satan takes compromise and preaches it as compassion. We see this in the world that we live in today. It seems like every time you turn around, there's some liberal preacher on TV uh, making some abominable statement that is absolutely contrary to the truth of the Word of God and saying, as a tagline at the end of it, we just try to love people. Let me tell you something. We ought not be ugly. We ought not be rude. We ought to speak the truth in love. Amen? But it is not an act of love to lie to someone to to smooth their conscience. That is not an act of love. It is not an act of love to withhold the truth from someone just to spare their carnal feelings. Uh, Satan, he preaches compromise as compassion. Then let me say this. Satan presents carnality as Christianity. We see this popular in in most churches today. Most churches you walk in, you wouldn't know the difference between it and a bar. They got the same music, they got the same light shows, they got the same everything. And listen, I don't think we ought to be stuffy. I mean, and I don't believe we are. I don't believe anybody that's been around here any length of time would accuse us of being a dead formalistic church. But we ought to be separate from sinners and separate from the world and sanctified not just from sinners but unto God. People ought to know when they walk into church that they've walked into church. (laughs) But the devil dresses it up as religion, and you see this all the time. Every once in a while, there'll be some kind of church in a bar come out, and uh, somebody's going to go, isn't it funny, don't none of those ever stick around? You know what I think happens? I think eventually the bar wins out. I'm serious. Hey, when was the last time you uh, heard somebody say, oh, did you hear about that great revival going on down at the bar church? When was the last time that you heard somebody say, Hey, did you hear about those 25 that had saved down at the bar church? You hear how the Holy Ghost blew through there and folks started repenting and pouring out their liquor and calling on God. You never hear that. You know why? Because the bar wins out. And eventually the Bible goes. At the end of the day, listen, and again, we ought not to be isolationists. We ought not to be purposefully weird. Most of us don't have to be purposefully weird. We're just casually weird. But we, we don't need to go out of our way to be, uh, to be odd. We ought to be a peculiar people, but we don't need to go out of our way to be some kind of spectacle uh, among society. But listen, if we live godly in Christ Jesus, it's going to make a difference in the way we live and behave and appear. And we ought to be willing to do so. Satan always dresses it up as good motives. Nothing, it's like the government. You know, uh, the old, old Mr. Reagan said that the uh, nine scariest words in the human language is, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. Right? <laughs> the devil's always here to help. 
He always comes not to harm, quote-unquote, but to help. And He dresses it up. He has a false motive. And He tells the world today that He's got the answers. It's funny to me. The same church growth gurus that were writing books 40 years ago are still writing books today. If their books worked 40 years ago, we shouldn't have to be writing them today. Uh, but they're, uh, they're still writing the same books that they have for 40 years. They always come claiming to want to help, and yet it never is the case. It was a false motive. Notice verses 10 through 11. This is important. I really want you to get this. The Bible says, But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as ye shall hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men out of Jerusalem, that were called, and they went in their simplicity, and they knew not anything. Let me say that he had a false motive, but number two, he had a false message. He said, nothing wrong with the trumpet, but when the trumpet's blown, you give your own definition of what that means. I want you to listen carefully. The devil knows that in order to exercise his will in this world, he has to undermine the Word of God. Are you with me tonight? He has to undermine the Word of God. The Word of the Lord is the strength of God's people. It is a two-edged sword. It is the sword of the Spirit. Part of Satan's desire and design today has been to undermine people's confidence in the truth and authenticity and inerrancy of the Word of God. He's done this by sending out a thousand million gajillion different quote-unquote translations into the world that's left people scratching their heads and saying, does God even have a Bible at all? You hear people say all the time, well, in the originals. Here's the problem. Nobody's ever had the originals. We either believe that God can preserve His Word, and we believe... You see, here's what it boils down to. Listen carefully. It's not a question of which Bible. It's a question of do we believe God has a Bible? Because uh, if we believe that the Word of God is inerrant and perfect and complete in every way, shape, fashion, and form, then only one Bible can be right. And I'm talking about in any given language, only one Bible can be right, and every other Bible has to be ultimately wrong. Now, they may not be wrong on everything, but it has to be wrong on something. It's not enough to say, well, I believe God uh, inspired His Word in the originals. If you don't believe He preserved it, then you believe God is foolish and nearsighted. And beyond that, you believe God's a liar, because He promised in Psalms 12 that He would preserve His Word. So the question is not, do we believe in this Bible or that Bible or this Bible or that Bible? Uh, The question is, do we believe there is a Bible? I believe there is a Bible. And then once you're left saying there is a Bible, which Bible is it? Well, then there's no competition. It must be, for the English-speaking people, it must be the King James Bible. There's no other Bible that's proven to be inerrant. There's no other Bible that has had the longevity. There is no other Bible uh, that... Hey, listen, if there's all these mistakes in it, uh, don't you believe the devil would have somebody plastered on a billboard? Uh, listen, I, and I know I'm not an old-timer. I've been preaching about ten years. I've preached well over a thousand times by now, and I've never found an error in it. Beyond that, I had a pastor that had preached for about 60 years. Ain't no telling how many sermons he preached. He never found an error in it. Listen, we either believe God has preserved His Word or we don't. In other words, we either believe this Bible is absolute or it's obsolete. One of the two. Now, once we believe that God has preserved His Word then we must determine what do we believe is the preserved Word of God. And even the people that publish the other Bibles will tell you that they believe nothing matches the majesty, beauty, and accuracy of the King James Bible. 
So the question is, do we believe we have a Bible or not? Don't say it's in the originals, because that don't mean nothing. If it's just in the originals, God didn't preserve it, because ain't nobody ever had the originals. Uh, you say, well, somebody had the originals. Well, not some of them. Uh, Moses took the stone up on the mountain. I, listen, I feel good now. We might just preach for two or three more hours. Satan, uh, uh, Moses, he took the tablets up on the mountain and God wrote with his finger on those tablets. When Moses came down off the mountain, he got angry. He got in the flesh and he threw those tablets down and busted them. Whoop, there go the originals. And then when he goes up on the mountain, he has to carry the tablets himself and God dictates what he said to Moses and Moses has to write it down. So in other words, those originals were gone. Uh, what are we going to do about the originals that Jehudi uh, took his pen knife out and cut them out and threw them in the fire in the book of Jeremiah? I'm saying this, it's a straw man to say the originals because no one has ever held the originals in their hand and said, here's the Bible. If we believe there's a Bible in this world, then it must be a Bible we can hold and read and study and believe and preach or it doesn't mean anything. There was no problem with the trumpet. But I want you to listen carefully. You know what Absalom did? He had them change the meaning of the trumpet through their human commentary. The trumpet was the same trumpet it was every time the trumpet blew. But he said, when that trumpet blows, you give your own commentary. You holler out, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And people are still doing that today. In fact, I told you just, man, if you've got a Schofield Bible, you can see it for yourself. Right there in the middle of the page, on that page, some authorities read four. Well, the ultimate authority reads 40. Amen? What does that mean? Or they'll say the oldest text. And Hey, listen, we, we could spend some time talking about those oldest texts. The oldest texts in existence, when they say the oldest manuscripts say this or that, they're talking about two distinct manuscripts. They're called Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Sinaiticus was found where it belonged in a trash can at St. Catherine's Monastery by a man named Tischendorf. And the monks had more common sense than Tischendorf had because the monks were the ones that put it in the trash can. He picked it up out of the trash can, brought it back, home like it was some great treasure. When you look through both of these manuscripts, by the way, you know what you'll find? All around there's things crossed out and marked out. Even the people that pinned those manuscripts down didn't believe they were right. And the Codex Vaticanus was locked away on the Roman Catholic bookshelf for hundreds of years. And these are not, by the way, when they say the oldest manuscripts, they date back to about 400 A.D. Hey, they don't, they, those ain't originals either. So when they say in the originals, it said, they don't know that because they ain't never had the originals. And whenever they translated the new versions of the Bible, they dismissed the over 5,000 extant manuscripts that supported the received text and instead embraced these two rogue uh, texts, these two rogue manuscripts, along with about 40 others, to support their uh, ecclesiastical agenda. They rejected the truth that had been revealed, that had been exposed, and instead they imparted upon their own propaganda movement. Listen, I know what I'm talking about. I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm not trying to be prideful when I say that. I'm just saying this. I know what I'm talking about. When I say this, I don't say this in ignorance. When I say it, I don't say it just, well, Grandpappy raised me that way. I've studied this thing. I've looked at this thing. And I'm telling you that this right here is the absolute, infallible, inerrant Word of God. We ought to stand with it. The devil has a false message. There were two types of people. Listen, before everybody gets their feelings hurt, there were two types of people that got sucked into this. One, there were those that were spies. These people knew what they were doing. They sought to undermine the meaning of the trumpet purposefully. And there are people like that today. 
There are people that seek to make merchandise of the Word of God and seek to make merchandise of Bible believers. But that wasn't the majority of people. Listen, somebody's going to say, but preacher, I've got someone I know and I'm friends with and they this, that, and the other. And listen, I ain't enemies with your friend, amen. Uh, But there were those that were spies, but then there were those that were simple. And, And it doesn't mean they were stupid either. What it means is they were unaware The Bible says there were 200 of them went with Absalom, and they knew not anything. In other words, they didn't know what was going on. And listen, I want you to understand this. There are people out there that they know that they're uh, they're corrupting and perverting the truth of the Word of God. But that's not the majority of people that are out there embracing new Bible versions. The vast majority of them, they just don't know that there's anything wrong with them. I remember I was talking to someone one day, someone very precious to me, and we were sitting down... And uh, I, I, I had not. I knew these people. Uh, this lady in particular, she loved the New International Version of the Bible, and I and I wasn't interested in getting a fight with her. But she wanted to talk about it, so she she wanted to talk to me about the King James Bible. And I said to her, I, I said, "Listen, I want you to take your Bible, and I, I said I, I want you to take your NIV, and I'm going to take my King James, and we're going to turn to Acts chapter number eight." And so we turned over to Acts chapter number eight, and we began to read about the uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. And uh, we read down through there how that, uh, the, you know, Philip came and joined himself close to the chariot. And, uh, we came down, and this is how mine read. I don't have an NIV up here, so you're just going to have to bear with me. Amen. <laughs> but this is what it says. It says in verse uh, number 36, And as they went on their way, they came under a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Verse 37, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And I said, all right, now I want you to read it out of your New International Version. She said, okay. So she read it, and hers, it would have been worded a little bit differently than this, but this is the gist of how it read. It said, and as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. She read that, and she didn't even hear what, what changed. She just read it. She said, yeah. I looked at her. I said, read verse 37 to me. And she opened her Bible back up, and she looked at it, and then she looked at me, and her eyes got big as saucers. And she said, where is it? I said, that's a good question. She said, it's not in there. I said, I know it's not. And she said, Toby, we give these Bibles out to people. And I said, why? I know. Listen, I'm not trying to upset you. I'm I'm just, you you wanted to talk about it, so I was showing it to you. See, she had never even known. She never even realized. She, She wasn't a stupid person. She wasn't an idiot. She had just never been shown that. She had never seen that before. And you know what you'll find? If you'll start uh, thumbing through some of these newer versions of the Bible over and over and over again, they take out the blood. They take out the deity. They take out the reality of a literal hell. They take out the eternal security of the believer. Uh, they, uh, they Oftentimes, they, they compromise the notion of salvation by faith, and that's exactly what that passage did. Uh, listen, the reason, that, uh, the, the reason that Westcott and Hort did that whenever they came up with their Westcott and Hort Greek text is because it sort of lends itself to the notion of baptismal regeneration, if you take verse 37 out. And it takes out one of the strongest text verses against the notion of baptismal regeneration to remove that. And when you're holding hands with the Roman Catholic Church, the way that Westcott and Hort were, that believes if you keep the sacraments and if you're baptized and if you join church membership, then you can get to heaven, then it's very convenient to take out Acts 8.37. I'm just saying, listen, this isn't stuff... I'm not new to this thing, and this is not stuff that's just said casually. 
There is a conspiratorial, concerted effort to undermine the truth of the Word of God. And one of the main avenues and one of the main parts of that is the false Bibles that are propagated throughout the English world today. And Listen, if you've got some of them sitting on your bookshelf, I ain't mad at you. I don't hate you, but I don't believe you benefit from them. I believe you benefit from the truth. Amen? And I've found that if you'll study the Word of God, you'll find this to be true, that God's Word, this Bible, will always provide you the answer that you need. There was a false message. Everybody breathe. There was a false message. Let me say this. He had a false man. Look down at verse number 12. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gilo. While he offered sacrifices and the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom. Ahithophel is an interesting person in Scripture. He has been a, a long counselor of King David. He is a man that is respected. And no doubt when Ahithophel threw in with Absalom, the children of Israel probably looked and said to themselves, well, this must be the real deal. If Ahithophel sees that this is legitimate, then surely it must be legitimate. You know what I found to be the case? For every lurch towards compromise, God always has a man that at one time was credible that is now heading up that lurch towards compromise. How often can you look backwards and think of preachers that at one time you admired that at one time you'd even say this, hey, preacher, they knew better. I could name person after person after person that at one time stood for old-time Bible Christianity, that at one time stood for the King James Bible, that at one time stood for consecrated music, that at one time stood for soul winning, that have sold the whole thing down the river, lock, stock, and barrel, and have gone after carnality and people-pleasing and temporal things. Ahithophel, I want you to listen carefully, was a credible man. And that's why Absalom chose him. But he was also a corrupted man. Ahithophel had his own agenda. Uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but if you study it out, you'll find out who Ahithophel is. Ahithophel is the, uh, is the uh, grandfather of Bathsheba. You remember Bathsheba, that David lay with Bathsheba and then killed Uriah, her husband. The reason Ahithophel threw in with Absalom is he saw it as an opportunity to finally get his vengeance on David who had corrupted his granddaughter and stolen her away from him. And you know what I found is this. God will always have somebody that at one time was credible but has become corrupted through personal agenda. I'm going to tell you why I really believe. And you'll see this a lot of times. I've got one person in mind in particular. And God won't give me liberty to say their name. But some of you would know the name if I did say it. One particular person in mind uh, that at one time was, was uh, straight as an arrow. And now, man, they're just way out crazy. And you know, a lot of times, I want you to listen carefully. And I want you to receive this in the right spirit. I'm not fussing, but I am explaining what I believe is the reason for this. A lot of times it happens when preachers get older. And you know what I think happens? Two things. One, their kids happen. A lot of times they wind up, their kids go the wrong way, and they don't have heart enough to stand where they're at and still love their children. They, listen, they ought not throw their children under the bus. I'm not saying that. But if it was right 30 years ago, it ought to still be right today. So they ought to be willing to stand on the truth. They ought to be willing to do it in love, but they ought to be willing to stand on the truth. Here's another reason I think it happens. I think a lot of times they feel the close of their life coming in. 
and they feel like failures, and they feel like they've not been as effective as they wish they had been, and they've gotten to an age where they don't care what people think, and so they just cast off everything and go full bore after compromise. Ahithophel was sort of like this. He knew this was the last regime he was going to be a part of, and so he just went ahead and tried to go about his vendetta. Satan always has a man, always has somebody that will stand up and add a little credibility to this thing. But at the end of the day, listen carefully, right is right, wrong is wrong. doesn't matter how the winds blow and how society changes, truth is still truth. It doesn't matter who it is that compromises, truth is still truth. The Bible says about Paul that he looked at Philip when Philip uh, had dissimulated along uh, with others and had, had begun to act like hypocrites uh, towards those, uh, those uh, Gentiles. When the Jews showed up there in the book of Galatians, Paul said, I withstood Peter to the face because he was to be blamed. In other words, Paul stood right in Peter's face and in love he rebuked him. And he said, why? Hey, listen, if you're a Jew and you behave as Gentiles uh, and you think that's all right, then why do you compel these Gentiles to behave as Jews? And he was stood him to the face. It don't matter who it is. Listen, truth is truth. And we don't need to be ugly about it. We need to be conscientious of a person and their legacy and what they've done. But we don't ever need to compromise for the sake of being a respecter of person. I'll give you a final thing and I'm done tonight. Look over in chapter 16. Those of you all that ain't mad at me yet. Chapter 16. There's a lot we could say about this conspiracy. But I simply want you to notice that from the very beginning, it was a conquered conspiracy. Look at verse 15 through 19. The Bible says this in chapter 16, verse 15 through 19, And Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Hithophel with him. And it came to pass when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, was come unto Absalom, that Hushai said unto Absalom, God save the king, God save the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this thy kindness to thy friend? Why wentest thou not with thy friend? And he's talking about David. And Hushai said unto Absalom, Nay, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his will I be, and with him will I abide. And again, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son, as I have served in thy father's presence? So will I be in thy presence. You might say, preacher, there ain't nothing encouraging about that. Hushaite, the archite, was a friend of David. And here he is telling Absalom that whoever's king, that's who he's going to serve. He's basically professing he has no loyalty whatsoever, insomuch that even Absalom looked at him and said, is this the way you treat your friends? My daddy's supposed to be your friend. Is this the kindness you do to him? But we find out a little bit of insight when we look back in chapter 15. I'm just going to read a couple verses here, because this isn't the first time Hushai shows up. David has been expelled from Jerusalem. He's leaving. He's on his way out. Absalom is riding in with his uh, men, and they're getting ready to take the throne, and David's on the way out. And whenever he's on the way out, the Bible says this, And it came to pass, in 2 Samuel 15, 32, it came to pass that when David was come to the top of the mount where he worshipped God, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat rent and earth upon his head, unto whom David said, If thou passest on with me, then thou shalt be a burden unto me. But if thou return to the city and say unto Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king, as I have been thy father's servant hitherto, listen to this, so will I now also be thy servant, then mayest thou for me defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. I don't know if you see it yet, but don't you understand what's going on here? Hey, listen, Satan had a man. He rose up Ahithophel. 
But God had a man too, and he rose up Hushai the archite. And you know what I find? That before this conspiracy ever really got underway, it was already conquered, number one, by the people of God. Hey, listen, God, it may look sometimes, you look out at this world and you say, hey, everybody's compromising, the world's wicked, nobody stands in the way of truth. You may get a little bit of Elijah complex. I was standing upstairs with my little boy, and uh, he looked at me, he said, Daddy, you're the only preacher in this world. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, there ain't no other preachers, you're just the only one. I felt like that before. I mean, listen, I have, and most people that serve God have felt that way, and Elijah said that. He hid himself away in the cave, and he said, hey, I and I alone am left. There's nobody else. And God said, oh, dry it up. I've got hundreds that have not bowed the knee to Baal. We think we're the only ones left. Then along comes a Hushai that's willing to stand with God. It's willing to do battle against the enemy. And it reminds me of this, that though Satan may gain a foothold in this world, as long as you and I as the people of God are salt and light and are standing for truth, the conspiracy will continue to be thwarted. God always has His people. And I want to be one of them. I want to be one of them. Look back in chapter 16. I want to show you another thing that encouraged me. Look down at verse 20 through 22. The Bible says this, Then said Absalom to Ahithophel, Give counsel among you what we shall do. And Ahithophel said unto Absalom, Go in unto thy father's concubines, which he hath left thee uh, to keep the house, and all Israel shall hear that thou art abhorred of thy father. Then shall the hands of all that are with thee be strong. So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house, and Absalom went in unto his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now listen, I know that's an ugly scene, but I also find something encouraging here. You know why? Ahithophel gives this uh, counsel to Absalom for a few different reasons. David had left ten concubines behind to keep the house. Now remember, these concubines, they're almost akin to a wife to David. They they would have uh, been uh, viewed as being his legacy. And I believe that there's a few reasons Ahithophel tells him to do this. One, I believe he did it to convey strength to the children of Israel. I believe this was Absalom's way of trying to say, Hey, I ain't afraid of my daddy. I ain't afraid of nobody. The Bible says they spread that tent up on top of the palace where everyone could see it. And this was his way of saying, I'm not afraid of anybody. I think there's a second reason they did this. I think they did this to convince the skeptics. There might be some people that would have said, hey, this is just temporary. Uh, Absalom and David, they've had problems before. Don't forget that Absalom had been in exile for two years prior to this. Uh, Absalom, uh, for having killed his brother Amnon. And so there had been family problems before. Uh, No doubt there would have been people that would have said, well, this thing will blow over. It's no big deal. But once they saw that, they would have known this. David can't allow this to stand. David will have to answer this. David will have to deal with this. You know, part of the reason that the devil does what he does in flaunting himself before uh, those uh, that believe the Word of God and trying to posture and show his power, he's trying to prove that he's really in charge. But then I want you to notice, I think there was a third reason. I don't think this is why Absalom did it necessarily, but I believe this is what Satan was doing. I believe they did this to corrupt the seed of the Messiah. Now remember, Jesus, he's the line of the tribe of Judah, right? Which is the kingly tribe, the tribe that David is from. And so, it was going to be from David that the Messiah was going to ultimately be born. And you'll find this, by the way, he did this all through the the Word of God. Time after time, he tried to pervert or destroy the seed. He, He did this with Abraham, with Ishmael. 
and Hagar. What was he trying to do? He was trying to cloud. And by the way, he did a pretty good job. The Middle East is on fire tonight because half the people over there believe Isaac's the promised son and the other half believe Ishmael's the promised son. Trying to cloud the, the lineage. And over and over and over, you'll see it several times in the life of the patriarchs. You know what I believe he was trying to do? Absalom believed he would be king from here on out. And he wanted his descendant to be born from this concubine. And I believe Satan was trying to do something to besmirch the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's how I want to encourage you. I'm encouraged because of the people of God, but I'm also encouraged because of the providence of God. You know why? Because before this ever took place, God had already given David Ab- or Solomon. Solomon had already been born. And it was from Solomon that the lineage and line would continue on. You know what it reminds me of? No matter what Satan tries to do to undermine what God's doing, God's already a hundred steps ahead of him. God has already defeated him. God has already won this thing. God already has a plan. Hey, listen, Christ, before the world ever began, don't you know the devil thought he really got something started in the Garden of Eden? Don't you know he thought to himself, hey, I may be crawling on my belly on the dust of the earth, but at least I've done something to deal a blow to God. But something he didn't understand is that there was already a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God had already made a way. God had already conquered before Satan ever even got started started. I'm glad for the providence of God. And then finally, I want you to notice this. Not only was this conspiracy conquered by the people of God and the providence of God, but ultimately it was conquered through the punishment of God upon Absalom. Look at verse 23, and we have sort of a foreshadowing of this. You won't find much encouraging in this verse until you understand the background. The Bible says, "...in the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired..." at the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. You might say, Preacher, sure don't look good when you come to the end of chapter number 16. It sure looks like the wicked are winning. It sure looks like Ahithophel is getting his way in the palace. It sure looks like the devil's going to win. Yeah, it always looks like that. But don't ever forget, at the end of the day, uh, Peter said this in 2 Peter 2, 9, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under the day of judgment to be punished. We have a foreshadowing of this in what happens at the end of Ahithophel's life. It's actually just the next chapter over in verse 23. Ahithophel gives counsel uh, to Absalom that they ought to chase after and murder David because he wants his revenge. Hushai gives opposite counsel. He says, no, that's not what we ought to do. We ought to wait. And the Bible says that Absalom took the counsel of Hushai instead of the counsel of Ahithophel. He said, Preacher, what does that have to do with anything? Well, listen to what Ahithophel did. Verse 23, And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass and arose and got him home to his house, to his city, and put his household in order and hanged himself and died and was buried in the sepulcher of his father. Now listen, I don't take joy in the fact that Ahithophel took his life, but I do take joy in this that you go 22 verses earlier, and Ahithophel's counsel is like the counsel of God. It looks like he's winning. It looks like everything's going Absalom's way. It looks like that whole year is coming up, Absalom. But then, uh, not just, but about 20-something verses later, we find Ahithophel at the end of a rope, the judgment of God having been poured out, and him in his own misery and despair having taken his own life. You know what? It may look dark right now. It may look like the winds and the ways of the world are winning. 
But never forget that at the end of the day, God knows what He's doing. At the end of the day, the judgment of God, hey, listen, that wheel, it may grind slowly, but it grinds to dust. And the Lord will prevail over the conspiracy of the devil.